Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he'll be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the second reading is from Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Well, thanks, Jeff, and <clears throat> excuse me, and hello again, everyone. Um, most weeks when we get to the sermon, uh, we spend time sort of uh, going in depth in a passage, uh, just really digging into the details, uh, and our normal practice is to carefully work through verse by verse, uh, really the whole Bible, because we want to know God's Word and we want to know it well. Um, for reasons I can't quite remember now, I thought today I'd do something a bit different, and... Um, 
I'll just pause our series into Kings for a week and zoom right out to kind of ambitiously preach on the entire Bible in one sermon. Um, it might be a bad idea, uh, we'll, we'll find out, and at the end you can let me know what you think uh, whenever the end of this sermon may arrive. Um, now obviously we're going to skip quite a few details, uh, there's only so much we can do in one sermon on the whole Bible, but what we're going to do is focus on one of the really big themes of the Bible, and we're going to sort of see how that theme unfolds and sort of develops uh, from Genesis to Revelation, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. Uh, You may have noticed, uh, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. Uh, It's what he spoke about the most. Uh, A whole bunch of his most famous parables uh, are usually him illustrating what the kingdom of God is like. Uh, Now, most here may have uh, some kind of sense of what the kingdom of God is. Like, What what does that mean? Um, But could we describe clearly uh, what we think the kingdom of God is? So I thought today I'm going to kick off by giving you all a chance to answer that question. How would you describe what the kingdom of God is? Uh, you'll see printed on si- inside your leaflet, there's a sermon outline. At the top of that outline is the question, the kingdom of God is. My invitation is to grab a pen and have a go at finishing that sentence. The kingdom of God is. I'm going to give you 20 seconds and don't worry, no one's going to be checking your answers, uh, something like that. Uh, and if you have no idea, that's totally fine. Just a good chance to, to think, well, what would you say uh, about that? I'll give you a moment, and uh, yeah, then we're underway again. All right, well, whatever you wrote down, if you did write anything, or whatever thoughts are bubbling away, uh, thanks for uh, just engaging in that question. I I hope today, whatever else you get out of it, I hope you get the sense that the kingdom of God is really, really important. Uh, It's important to Jesus, the thing he spoke about most. Uh, It's also important for us as a theme to help us read the Bible well. Uh, For instance, uh, as we get back to two kings, a series we'll get back to next week, uh, if we understand what the kingdom of God is all about, we'll understand two kings far better and how it fits into the overall picture of the Bible. But the most important thing about the kingdom of God uh, is that we're really talking about the nature of reality. We're talking about our identity. We're talking about our priorities, our life. We're talking about eternity. And so the kingdom of God is the reality that we're impacted by in all elements of life, whether we notice it or not, and whether we can describe it well or not. So I want to start by telling us a story, uh, story time with Cam. Uh, Once upon a time, there was a king, uh, and he had the perfect kingdom. It wasn't a big kingdom. Uh, not to begin with, but it was idyllic, uh, it was peaceful, uh, it was beautiful and prosperous. And people in the land, uh, they loved their king, uh, they adored him, they hung on to every word he uttered. And the people of this kingdom, uh, they loved the king's plans uh, to greatly expand the borders of his kingdom. But unlike other kings that we've, uh, we might be familiar with, his plan was not to invade and uh, seize control of things, It wouldn't need to be that way to expand. This kingdom was so good, the idea was it would naturally kind of expand. The goodness of this kingdom just overflow, and people would want to come and live under this king's good rule. That was the plan, and it was going well, until suddenly disaster struck. Uh, Seemingly out of nowhere, a rebellion sprung up. Now, the king wasn't overthrown, but his authority as king was undercut. It was actually rejected. 
Uh, the rebellion damaged uh, the relationship between the king and his people so badly because really what they chose was treason. And the kingdom kind of collapsed. Now, the story I've just told you is actually the story of Genesis, really. Uh, Genesis, uh, the Garden of Eden. Uh, we can think of that story of chapters 1 and 2 of the Bible as an idyllic kingdom where God's kingly rule and reign was initially perfectly obeyed. And God did lay out his plan to extend his kingdom through his royal ambassadors, people. In other words, God's kingdom was to grow as Adam and Eve would have set out, uh, being made in the image of their king, uh, with the instruction to fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, that is, uh, they were to expand the garden, to extend God's rule and reign over all the earth. That is, to take the garden, to see it grow, to take the kingdom and see it grow until the whole world was ruled by God through his people. And that first sin in Genesis 3, it is rebellion. It's treason against the king. Uh, sin is ultimately the rejection of God's kingly authority, and it's a disaster. The thing is, as you get to Genesis 3, you realize, well, God actually had a far more amazing plan all ready to go, a plan to restore his kingdom and to extend his reign as king and his blessing throughout the whole world. In fact, you could say from Genesis chapter 4 onwards, the rest of the Bible is about God moving history along towards that goal of bringing all the earth back under his rule. So, Let's trace briefly from there uh, through how God's kingdom's plans are rolled out through the Bible. Uh, the big cornerstone, uh, the big development in this plan comes in chapter 12 of Genesis, where God picks one guy, Abraham, and tells him his plan, uh, and that it all centers, God's plan all centers on Abraham's family. Now, I want to say Genesis 12 is a really key part of the Bible to, to have in mind, uh, to know, uh, because here, it's here that God tells us what he's going to do. He tells us his blueprint, and the rest of the Bible is the story of him doing it. So here's Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, later Abraham, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll be blessed those who, I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I know uh, the word kingdom uh, hasn't appeared at all there, has it? Uh, but you see here kind of all the ingredients you need for a kingdom. A place, uh, land, land is going to be given. Secondly, you have people, a nation. And third, you have God acting like a good king, looking after his people, blessing them and protecting them. Also, it includes that idea that we saw in Genesis, uh, chapter 1 and 2, that it includes the idea of expansion beyond a nation's border. That is, all peoples on earth will be blessed through this kingdom. This is a global plan you see right back in Genesis 12 with one guy, Abraham. Sure enough, as history rolls out under God's sovereign hands, Abraham's family grows and grows and it becomes eventually the nation of Israel. Now, when God signs a covenant with Israel, he kind of does it almost like a king would in the ancient world when they'd conquered someone. A king in the ancient world would sign a treaty, like a covenant with the people, to be their new king. And that's basically what God does with Israel. It's a covenant to be their king. And so God effectively is the king of Israel. He leads them. Uh, he leads them to the promised land. He gives them a place. And so you have really at that point a nation. Uh, the nation of Israel 
uh, is born. And from then on, Moses leads, um, sorry, from the time of Moses leading them onwards, God was their king. It's undoubtedly uh, the way that it was set up as a nation. You get to the point where the temple is built and um, Israel builds a temple that's kind of like a palace for God. It's kind of from where he'll rule the nation. And just like in the Garden of Eden, in the temple, God is present. He's there, tangibly, uh, with his people, ruling his kingdom. And so when you get to the nation of Israel, you see a pattern being established where God's kingdom is made up of his people. Uh, They're living in a place with God, and they're living under his rule. They're living under his blessing. It could have been perfect. Uh, It was a pretty good setup. Uh, But uh, it didn't go that way. So Israel could have expanded their borders. They could have brought uh, others in, uh, not by conquering the nations around them, but by blessing them. Israel was supposed to be so unique and to live so beautifully that the nations would flock to them and say, hey, we want to be like you. We want to join you. Uh, But that doesn't happen. Uh, Just like with the Garden of Eden and the rebellion there, uh, the people of Israel eventually rebel against God. They tell him, effectively, we don't want you to be our king. Um, we want a real king. We want one with flesh and blood like us. Amazingly, uh, God tells them that's a terrible idea, but nonetheless, he concedes and gives them what they ask. And I think it's one of those cases where God's punishment for their rebellion is giving them what they want. That is, we ought to be careful what we ask God for, especially if our attitude is like Israel's, thinking that you know they know best. Now, if you've been around uh, during the weeks when we've looked at the books of 1 and 2 Kings here at Tonsley, um, the main theme you can't escape in that part of the Bible we're looking at uh, is just how bad human kings are most of the time. Uh, 1 and 2 Kings is basically the case study as to why Israel should have never rejected God as their king. That was the disaster point. Uh, Because of their terrible kings, the kings that keep rejecting God's authority themselves, the people are plagued by disasters one after another. Their borders, rather than expanding into the nations, their borders shrink. And in the end, the nations actually do flock to Israel, but not in a good way. They come in, violently invading, destroying the nation. The people end up in exile, away from their uh, their promised land. And even the temple, uh, the, the palace of God, a sign that he lived with his people and ruled over them, the temple is destroyed. An absolute catastrophe. Actually, at the end of Two Kings, as we'll see, it looks a lot like God has abandoned his plans to extend his rule, he's extended his kingdom through Israel, through all the earth. However, uh, behind all this, there is one other key moment in the Old Testament that really stands out. Uh, it's just as important as the promise God made to Abraham. Is, it's the promise that God made to King David, a promise that his throne would stand forever. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, way back in the early days of Israel having a human king, uh, God selects this king for them, David, a model king actually. And God makes this unbelievable promise to King David. I'll read out uh, the section for you. This is from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to uh, to, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father, he'll be my son. When he does wrong, 
I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging is inflicted by human hands, but my love will never, uh, I will never take away from him. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now that is a staggering promise from God. Uh, that David's throne is going to be a permanent feature in God's world forevermore. Now, you only need to know a little bit about the ancient world. Even we see it in 1 and 2 Kings. Dynasties usually come and go within a few generations, but David's line will endure forever with the unconditional promise of God's love. Psalm 2, we had uh, read before us before, is a celebration, a song about this incredible promise to King David and his, uh, his line. Even still, uh, the Old Testament ends up in a really, really miserable place. Uh, God's people do return from their land. They come back from exile. They do rebuild the temple, but it kind of sucks. It's a bit underwhelming. But then for centuries, they're ruled by the nations around them, uh, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, notably not by David's family. And you wonder, what's going to happen? It's all very bleak. And even still, in the bleakness, in that worst part of Israel's history, God sends prophets, uh, people to speak messages of hope. One of the themes the prophets keep hitting is that God will stick with the plan he gave to Abraham and he gave to David. Perhaps most amazingly, the prophets speak of a time when the problem of rebellion will be fixed. After all, that was the problem all along, wasn't it? Uh, That's what ruined things in Eden and in Israel, sin. And so the prophets promised a, a new heart for God's people, a time when they would love him, they would love his rule and stop rebelling. And with Israel's history in mind, it all sounds too good to be true. And that's kind of the end of the Old Testament in, in a nutshell. I think what we've seen are, are the ingredients of, uh, of the key ingredients for God's kingdom, God's rule and God's blessing over his people. His people having a place to call home where God is somehow specially present and that God has promised a, a human king from David's family to he would, someone would rule over his kingdom under him. And so then as we get to the New Testament, uh, David's descendant Jesus burst out of nowhere uh, onto the world stage. And what's his message? Have a look with me again. This is Mark chapter 1, and this is Jesus' first recorded sermon. It's very short, far shorter than my preaching. Uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now let's pause. He's proclaiming the good news of God. Literally, he's proclaiming the gospel. Uh, he's literally preaching the gospel on page one of Mark. So think about that. Jesus hasn't yet healed anyone. He hasn't forgiven people of their sins. He's still a long, long way from dying on the cross and rising to life. So what then is the gospel Jesus preaches on page one of Mark's gospel? Uh, usually when we talk about the gospel, we're often in, uh, including things like forgiveness of sins and uh, Jesus dying in our place and rising to new life, the hope of eternity, all true, all good. It's just that Jesus doesn't mention any of those things here, does he? What does Jesus mean by good news, by the gospel in Mark chapter 1? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? This is the gospel. Verse 15, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news, the gospel here, is that the kingdom of God is near. The time is now. That is, the long-awaited, long-promised plan of God is about to kick up a gear. God will now be present, ruling over his people, blessing them and the whole world. And from here on in, Jesus 
clearly goes on to announce himself and demonstrate himself to be the king, the Messiah, means the anointed king. Uh, He is the Messiah to be the ruler uh, of the line of David of this kingdom. Uh, Even in the little bit we read in Mark's gospel there, um, from that point onwards, we read a little bit about Jesus demonstrating his kingly authority. We read about him proclaiming truth. He had authority uh, in ways that no one else had. Jesus has authority over the realm of evil. As you keep reading through Mark, you see his authority over sickness, over nature, over sin, even over death itself. The point is, Jesus is the ultimate king with ultimate power. But Jesus, as he goes about teaching about the kingdom, uh, he also busts some categories for us about what his kingdom will be like. That is, his peers, his fellow Israelites, were hoping it would seem for a return to the good old days, when they had a huge temple uh, with a king literally sitting on a literal throne, uh, with secure national borders getting rid of uh, the oppressors. They were looking forward to being the people of God like the good old days. But with Jesus, he said it's not going to be like that. It's going to be way, way better. So, what does Jesus teach about the kingdom of God? It's a question we could spend many weeks unpacking, uh, but today we're going to obviously keep it pretty big picture and just stick to some of the basics. So, let's start with a question uh, we had right at the beginning. How can we describe the kingdom of God? Uh, There's plenty of ways you can describe it. You may have come up with something far better than I'll come up with here. But I think one of the most helpful ways of describing the kingdom of God uh, and what it's like is will be on the screen here. The kingdom of God, here's a description. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Because you think about it, that description works for Eden. It works for uh, the Old Testament nation of Israel. It works in the New Testament as Jesus describes the kingdom and it describes us now as people of the kingdom. See, the big category-busting thing Jesus did first was about who belongs to God's people. It's no longer about Israel, uh, who are, uh, as a nation, the kingdom of God. In fact, as you read about what Jesus does, he deliberately chooses 12 disciples. Uh, Those 12 are kind of recasting or recreating the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a whole new people. And Jesus sends them out as ambassadors of the king, He sends his disciples out to make disciples of all nations. Kingdom spreading work. And those apostles, those disciples, they're inviting not just Jews, but all people. All people to come and belong to the kingdom. And to spiritually become children of Abraham. So the who is different. Another key difference between the kingdom of God in the Old Testament and now is the where is different. God's kingdom is no longer confined to a space. It's not in a garden. It's not within a nation's borders. Uh, God's plans no longer center on uh, the land in the Middle East. In fact, Jesus very clearly states that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not in some sort of physical location. The kingdom of God is in a spiritual domain or, or realm, and it's a domain that's stretching across the whole world. You can think about uh, the kingdom of God stretching from you know, Tonsley to Tokyo, uh, from Broken Hill to Berlin. It's all God's kingdom, uh, and it's growing. It's just not visible. It's not political. It's personal. As across the world, men, women, and children are entering into the kingdom of God, becoming citizens of that kingdom by living under God's rule and blessing, by having Jesus as our king. Let me say just a little bit more about how the kingdom grows. 
Uh, we saw in Mark 1 that Jesus announces the kingdom is near. And he gives us two things to do immediately. First, repent, and then believe. Uh, repenting means turning away from our rebellion. Uh, turning away from trying to be the kings or the queens of our own domains, of our own personal kingdoms, and instead submitting our lives, our identities, to the rule of Jesus. And to believe, well, the idea here is, I think, to believe that Jesus is the king. He is the one who gives us every blessing. Uh, most of all, King Jesus returns us, uh, reconciles us in relationship with our creator. He gives us also his Holy Spirit. Isn't that extraordinary? The presence of God in our midst, in our lives. Within our very mundane weeks, we have the presence of power of God ourselves with us, within us. He's encouraging us, he's challenging us, he's growing us. It's wonderful. In Mark 1, after declaring the kingdom of God is near, the next thing Jesus does is invite disciples to come and sit under his authority to become part of his kingdom, and then to invite others to do the same. That's how the kingdom grows. It's not through power. uh, It's not through politics. Uh, Unlike the spread of most religion, it's not at the threat of a sword. In fact, counter to the wisdom of the world, the way the kingdom of God grows, as God's spirit goes to work, it's by grace. It's by compassion. It's not by might. His kingdom advances by grace, by turning other cheek, by loving our neighbour, and showing what life in the kingdom is like, and then inviting others to respond in repentance and belief to make Jesus their king as well. One of the most complicated things, though, about the kingdom of God is asking, well, when is the kingdom of God? Um, that is, is it near? Is it far away? Is it now? Is it later? And to show you how those uh, kind of questions can get a bit complicated, let me ask you, according to the Bible, when is Jesus declared king of the world? Is it at his resurrection? Or will it be when he comes in judgment, comes a second time? The answer is actually both. He's declared king at his resurrection and he'll be declared king as he comes in judgment. How about this one? Uh, When are Christians saved? Are we saved now when we put our trust in Jesus? Or are we uh, saved on that day of judgment? Again, the way the Bible answers that question, it's both. We're saved now, uh, but our salvation is made complete then, on that day. It's the same sort of idea with the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus announced the kingdom of God is near some 2,000 years ago, and then went on in his ministry to demonstrate the kingdom had come, but not in completeness, not in fullness. See, before Jesus comes again, the kingdom has growing to do. There will be a day where the kingdom will come in all its fullness. And Revelation paints this beautiful picture, a glorious picture, at the end of the Bible, where God will make a new heaven and a new earth, and God himself will dwell with his people face to face. See, the kingdom of God is now, and Jesus has launched already that eternal kingdom of God. But the kingdom is also not yet. There is so much more we still have to look forward to. How does that work? How does the now and not yet kind of tension work? Well, I think one way to help uh, think about that is thinking about spring. Um, At Tonsley, we look forward to spring all winter long uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, But when September 1 hits, uh, spring is technically here, it started, but it doesn't automatically mean the first Sunday in spring is beautiful and warm. Uh, Well, the trees don't all flower at once on September 1, do they? It's technically spring, 
uh, when September 1 hits, spring has started, but in the fullest sense, spring is still coming. There's more to look forward to. The same idea with the kingdom of God. Uh, perhaps there'll be some here who appreciate a good diagram, and apologies for those who are listening along online. Uh, shout out to my mum. I can only say the, the diagram here, I think, is uh, one I'm very proud of. It took me ages uh, because it represents all of history. Not sure how we can see that at the back. Um, but here is all of human history, uh, the present age. There's everything before Jesus arrived and everything after that. That's where we live, uh, up until uh, the return of Jesus one day. Now, when Jesus arrived, he kicked us into that last period of history between those two vertical lines. Uh, we are in now the end days. That's the timeline of all of human history right there on one, uh, one screen. However, uh, the timeline of the New Testament also looks a bit uh, like the next slide. Uh, when Jesus came, the kingdom was started. Uh, and the kingdom is rightly all about the age still to come. Uh, Jesus' ministry was a foretaste of uh, that age to come, the casting out of demons, the curing of the sick, forgiving of sins, uh, just living a perfect life of compassion and mercy and grace, all of that belongs to the age still to come. So which diagram is correct? Well, the next one I think represents it all well. We live in the overlap of those two ages. We live in the now but not yet the kingdom of God has been launched, it's been started or inaugurated, but the kingdom of God is still to be filled out, completed, to be consummated when Jesus returns. So we enjoy life in the kingdom now. It's a wonderful thing to be people of the kingdom, but we have so much more to look forward to, to live it in the full then. All right, so far uh, we've covered the whole Bible. Uh, and now we've covered a timeline of all of eternity, so that's not a bad, uh, bad Sunday morning at one level. But I guess the big question to finish with is, well, so what? Um, I realise I've given plenty of information today. Uh, we've covered a lot of territory, and I hope it's been helpful uh, to different degrees, but I think what matters most is not how clearly we can understand or even describe these things. Uh, what matters is how the kingdom of God features in our lives. Well, actually, I think it's probably better to say what matters is how our lives feature the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God really does impact every single part of our life. Our work, our finances, our future, our identity, our character. Because living under the authority of King Jesus impacts every single part of our life. So above all, being someone in the kingdom and going on about a kingdom business means we have a lifestyle to live. It's a lifestyle of repentance and belief. Kingdom living is uh, continually coming back and repenting of being kings and queens of our lives and to keep entrusting Jesus as our king. All of us will have um, problems with authority from time to time. Uh, and so today, perhaps for some of us, we do need to remind it of who's really our king and what that king's grace and also what his authority really means in our life. And we need to repent. We need to believe. Uh, especially if it's been a while for you since you last uh, brought your heart before Jesus and uh, prayed that very brave prayer asking him to examine our hearts and to reveal what needs changing. It might be a good day to do that today. 
By way of tying this all together, um, I've just picked a few kind of uh, examples, I suppose, of um, things to just open up further thoughts about living as kingdom people now. There could be any number of topics uh, to be picked here, but I just picked two to look at briefly. See, an important part of living as kingdom people is our expectations uh, and having a healthy expectations of the kingdom and our king. So take, for instance, the topic of healing. Now, Jesus shows very much how his kingdom has arrived by miraculously healing uh, many people. Uh, the apostles continue to do that great work, demonstrating the kingdom of God spreads through Jesus' people powerfully. Now, one o'clock forward, um, some people today assume that because, rightly, we are in the kingdom now, uh, but wrongly assume that means we should expect healing every time now. Some people teach that if we're not healed, uh, it's because there hasn't been enough faith. But that's dangerous, and it's wrong. But it has that old idea of when uh, being messed up. There is a similar danger on the other end of the spectrum, which is we might wrongly think that the kingdom of God is not yet present, as if we shouldn't expect God to do anything miraculous or heal at all. Also wrong. We live in the now and the not yet. God can and does heal, but in this present age, he has not promised to, to do so. And when he does heal, it's only in limited ways, limited to this present age. For instance, no matter how miraculous a healing may be, our bodies are still mortal. Even Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead, uh, went on to face death at a later date. Uh, knowing we live in, in the between times, I think, helps us avoid both extremes. We can pray boldly for healing, trusting in God to be kind and good, but also knowing we await for the redemption of our bodies. Well, let's take a different issue, uh, politics. Um, How does the kingdom of God uh, shape our expectations of politics now? Uh, One of the things I love about Psalm 2 we read earlier is I think it gives us a kingdom perspective on politics, uh, a really big picture. Verse 1, I think it's on the screen. uh, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Of course they do. Uh, the powers that be hate that they, that even the thought that they might have to answer to a higher king. Begin to verse 4 of this psalm, and you can see God's perspective on this. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, he scoffs at them. It's like nothing. See, Jesus really does rule the universe, that's reality. It just sometimes looks to us like politicians are in charge, they think they are. And some of them very much do plot against God and his people. And they make life difficult, uh, even uh, in the kingdom in this, in this age. But we truly belong to the age to come, to a kingdom that is not of this world. So I know it's not quite this simple, but because our king is king, and because he can actually laugh off these attempts of global rulers to, uh, to run his world, as people of his kingdom, I think we should be aware of two extremes. One is being aware of putting too much trust in those who govern. They can't really fix our biggest problems. Or we should be aware that we don't need to fear them. We don't need to fear them. Our king rules. But to finish this morning, I want to leave us all with um, the challenge of Jesus to seek the kingdom of God. It's a reality, but we must interact with it. Um, And to desire that all that still lies before us Jesus tells his short parable. He says, again, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and brought it. It's about being all in. Wanting the kingdom so much would give up everything. So that's a question I want to leave us with this morning. Are you all in? Is the kingdom this precious to you that it puts everything else in your life in the shade? If not, why not? What's holding us back? In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then there'll be a few moments to respond in sort of personal reflection and prayer. Uh, The question I'd love you to, to leave you with reflecting on is, is the kingdom of God this precious to you? Is it so precious you'd throw everything else away to be in the kingdom? If not, why not? For now, let me pray, and then we'll have that time to reflect. Lord God, we praise you for this incredible plan to bring your rule and your blessing to all people, even to us. We thank you for so graciously inviting us into this kingdom. It's the kingdom of your son. So please help us grasp all this means in our life now. And even more so, help us look forward to everything you've set in place for us. Please help us to treasure your kingdom more than anything. We pray, may your kingdom come. Amen.